maybe I should say, in case any of your listeners aren't aware, every field has at least two alternative approaches. Like, I don't know what they call it in psychology, but like nature and nurture, right? You have your your behavioralists and you have your, you know, subjectivists or, or whatever, right? You, you have, in any introduction to sociology, you will have at least, they will have like maybe the theoretical and the empirical, or, uh, uh, you know, different approaches, right? And usually they have more than two. Economics is the only field where there is just one approach. And they call it economics. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with one of the original developers of MMT, Matthew Forstatter. Matt is a professor of economics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City, or UMKC, which, according to Sam Levy, who was my first ever guest, and also a UMKC economics PhD student, is where MMT was born. Matt is also research director for the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, and research associate for the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College. In this first of a five-part episode, Matt and I first talk about how he grew up in Philadelphia, where I also grew up and still live near. He attended Temple University in North Philadelphia and earned a bachelor's degree in what was originally called Pan-African Studies, but came to be known as African-American Studies. According to Matt, quote, everything seemed to keep coming back to economics. He says he also decided on economics because economists and their theories affects people's lives in a more immediate sense than other subjects. Although all subjects are important in their own way, there is a reason, he says, that every country's leaders has economic advisors. Matt then talks about his long career as a heterodox economist and professor and the difficulties he experienced and witnessed among the heterodox community, substantially due to the lack of support from and benefit to those in power. The infighting and factionalism he describes is similar to the concepts in his 1999 paper regarding Abba Lerner called Functional Finance and Full Employment. In it, 
He talks about how the artificial scarcity of jobs and funding, as imposed by the central government and currency issuer, causes bad behavior and decisions by workers and unions in an effort to protect their artificially limited jobs at all costs. This understandably results in discrimination against the most disadvantaged. As Stephanie Kelton describes it, it is a cruel game of musical chairs. Matt calls Fred Lee an important figure in promoting and supporting a big tent for post-Keynesians in order to address just some of these concerns. One of the primary examples Matt gives of discrimination by neoclassicals is how heterodox economists were told that if a concept could not be modeled or expressed in math, then it wasn't really economics. I see this as a tool to make economics inaccessible to the general public, and also as a way to take the real world, which is complicated, difficult, and beautiful, and reduce it to meaningless numbers and formulas. This is not unlike focusing on a child's report card or standardized testing grades and ignoring the child himself. This intentionally myopic view of the world obviously ignores real-world suffering and also makes it very easy to justify not alleviating it. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now, on to our conversation. In one of the papers I read, you have a biography in the back, and it says you got a bachelor's at Temple. Did you grow up in around Philly? Yes. Born and raised in Philadelphia. Where? Um, well, I was born in uh, Pennsylvania Hospital, eight, what is it, 8th and Spruce. Uh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but um, then my parents... Uh, I mean, they call it South Philly, but it's not South Philly like most people think of it. Like most people, when you say South Philly, they think um, more like Fourth uh, and South Street or something, or or you know, going straight south from Broad Street. Mm-hmm. But my father grew up in the Grace Ferry neighborhood, Thirtieth uh, and Wharton. My mom was okay. from Twenty Second and Point Breeze Avenue. And uh, three of my four grandparents were not born in the United States. Then I have uh, two older brothers, a younger sister. After my two older brothers were born, see, at that, by that point, my parents, uh, they had moved to, uh, they're still within the, the Philadelphia line, 
uh, I forget the name of the neighborhood. They just used to call it by the the uh, Claremont Road. It's kind of, I don't know if you would call it, uh, what would you call it? It, 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 it? It's right across Cheltenham Avenue from Cheltenham. Hmm. Uh, so on the Philadelphia side. So I don't know if all those neighborhoods like East Oak Lane and, uh, you know, anyway, then, uh, they moved out to, uh, Upper Dublin in, okay. uh, Montgomery County. Then, you know, uh, until the kids, until we were all grown and, and then, uh, I moved, uh, back into, uh, they, and then they moved back into the city. I I left uh, like a week after high school, went to live in York, Pennsylvania on a farm. Uh, it was actually like um, a homesteading school where we were growing organic food and, uh, and uh, building solar shelters and trying to be as self-sufficient as possible. Huh. Like I had grown up really wanting, I had a, a desire to do more with like my hands. Okay. Uh, and then after that, I lived in California for a little bit. I traveled around for a little bit and then uh, ended up, back in Philadelphia and uh, I was almost 22 and I took my first college class at Temple. I took a class in then it was called Pan-African Studies and uh, it later changed the name to African American Studies but I was hooked after the first class and it ended up being my undergraduate major. Mm. Uh, I was kind of emphasizing the social sciences within uh, the Black Studies program uh, there. And, you know, Temple has a very famous Black Studies program. Uh, It was the first to offer a PhD and it was a center for African-centered or Afrocentric perspective or or methodological approach. Um, And they, when I was two years into it, uh, they hired really the, the founder of, you know, the person who literally wrote the book on Afrocentricity, Malafi Asante. And he's also the editor of the Journal Black Studies, which was the top journal in in Black Studies. So, so yeah, I I just got drawn into all of that and uh, loved it so much. But so in in my courses, a lot of them, like I said, were in sort of the social sciences or if I had a choice to do a, a paper on a topic 
then I would choose something related to uh, history or political economy or development. And um, everything seemed to keep coming back to economics as far as the issues that I was interested in, poverty, discrimination, uh, unemployment, and inequality, right? Um, those were the issues that were, and I, 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 I'm not sure how old you are. You, you seem like you're younger than me. Uh, most people these days are. Uh, so, you know, you probably were either very young or not born yet, but in the mid-80s, you know, there was the anti-apartheid movement, you know, because Mandela was still in prison. There was the Central American uh, wars in, you know, Nicaragua, El Salvador. Mm -hmm. uh, there were also, like, the women's movement, the, you know, uh, environmental movement, the peace movement, the anti-nuclear. And so there, it, it kind of reminds me in some ways of, of what's been going on lately, as people forming coalitions, progressive coalitions, you know, coming, maybe starting from a more single-focused issue than broadening to form coalitions with others to, you know, make change. So it was a very exciting time. Uh, as far as like the student activism and things like that, and um, so economics, and I, I only took three economics courses as an undergrad: uh, introductory micro, introductory macro, and economic development. But my economic development course was, uh, and Temple does not have anything like a heterodox economics department unless things have changed a lot. Mm -hmm. But they did have, in those days, two heterodox economists, Ingrid Reimer and Jane Mandel. Jane wow. Mandel, you know who he is? No, I was, I was going to say, you said it wasn't heterodox, but at the time, how could you, what was your awareness of that there was even heterodox as opposed to mainstream? Right. So, you know, even when I was in graduate school at the new school in those days, so I, I graduate, I got my undergrad degree in 87 and uh, started at the new school that fall. Uh, so 87. And then I took my first full-time academic job in 1992. So I was at the new school for about five years. We never used the word heterodox, and you wouldn't hear the word heterodox in those days. In those days, there were many different, what we would now say, heterodox approaches, like uh, Slothian economics, Marxian economics of several types, post-Keynesian economics, right? So people didn't speak of an umbrella mm. term, like a big tent, which is really what Fred Lee was. I mean, he was a very good person in, 
in promoting and supporting this idea of a big tent because uh, even, you know, when I was at the new school and we had a small department, I mean, you know, 10 or less full-time faculty members, mm-hmm. and they were like factions of one. You had one classical Marxist, one neo-Marxist, one post-Keynesian, one Swathian, one, you know, feminist, if you were lucky. And, uh, yeah, it was only maybe towards the end of my time there, like, so the early 90s, when you started to hear, maybe, I forget when, you know, the, the Heterodox Economics Association was a UK you know, uh, based thing. And Fred Lee was, I think, one of the founding people because he was at De Montfort University in England for a number of years. Um, As were, they had a very good heterodox department until they eliminated the economics department. Um, Oh. Yeah. And, um, I'm surprised I, I thought mean, you were going to say eliminated the heterodox part of, you know, or the heterodox people. But no, they the entire eliminated department. the, they eliminated the department. And, um, you, you know, De Montfort, uh, I don't know a lot about this, but, it, you know, it had been one of the polytechnic schools. So they used to have, you know, these schools that had, you know, uh, De Montfort Polytechnic university in its title and then i think around i don't know late 80s or something they started to drop the polytechnic from it but yeah i mean yeah i I, all i can tell you is that uh there's going to be you know a battle coming up because you know, the state budgets and what higher administration will do. It's, it's, in our case, it's not really so much an attack on heterodox economics. It's more just an attack on spending money, you know? <laughs> so, We'll see, though. Uh, I mean, it's already been, you know, UMKC, because we're in Missouri, and the state legislature has been very hard on uh, public education, and we're part of the, you know, state university system. I mean, uh, we actually really never recovered from the last crisis, I mean, as far as the budgets, every year having to cut more and more and more or the university cutting more and more. Now, traditionally, we fund a lot of our uh, PhD students with external money. But you can imagine that the external money is going to get, you know, scarcer and so you know we're gonna to have to go to the unis. If you All right. About the uh, yeah. yeah yeah yeah. 
Um, well, I mean, it actually reminds me of well, – well, first of all, I just wanted to say that the reason I was excited when I heard – when I saw Philly is I've, I've been in Philly or around Philly my whole life. I grew up in Bucks County. Uh, I worked at University of Pennsylvania for a couple of years. Um, I, my wife uh, and I lived in, in right, near the, right next to the art museum for a few years. Uh, I'm in New Jersey right near Philly right now. So I've, you know, right. I, I've been in that area my whole life. Well, I used to work at the gas station at the intersection of the Pennsylvania Turnpike and Route 309 when I was huh. in high school. Okay. It was a mobile station then. I don't know what it is now. But in any case, yeah, uh, beautiful uh, parts of the county and uh, even New Jersey. You know, people make jokes about New Jersey, but there's some beautiful parts of, of New Jersey that people, you know, the, I guess the Pine Barrens and all that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, we're trying to protect that from natural gas pipelines now. Um, right. You said that uh, basically that the Fed chokes off the states because the Fed won't fund what they obviously could fund. And right. so it, it pits. Absolutely. So it, it puts, you know, everything in danger. I don't remember exactly how you said it, but the funding for the school and all that. And it actually it brings up, uh, I think it was in your paper about uh, Lerner, uh, Abba Lerner, uh, yes. of how – when there aren't enough jobs that that promotes racism because unions, you know, everybody right. tries to protect their own. And so who are they going to protect it against? Right. But the most disadvantage. And so that promotes racism and just every other horrible thing as well. No doubt. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, speaking of discrimination, so why don't we move on to that? Uh, if, if I was inspired by Fred Lee's book, um, yeah. I've, uh, it, it, I found it extremely impactful um, that the book itself is more, it's not even more, it's almost 100% discrimination that heterodox has received um, yeah. at the hands of neoclassicals and, right. the near, and the nearly infinite power that backs it. Um, so the academic concepts of economics cannot be separated from the actions of the people who develop and promote those concepts. So the, the example that always comes to me is Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby's comedy is incredible, and he also has done some really horrible stuff. And you can't separate things. You know, you, you, you know you, I, I choose not to listen to his comedy, even though it's amazing, because of that. So, you know. so my goal is to have this podcast document a little bit of what Fred Lee calls community history, as opposed to the right. academic or intellectual history, to provide right. the context for all of those academic concepts. So I don't want to dwell on it, but I would, I would ask if you could tell us about like a prominent incident that either you have experienced or you have witnessed someone else experience as far as discrimination against heterodox at the hands of neoclassicals with, for the purpose of putting it into a larger context of number one, showing what we're really up against because it really is a monster. And I, I don't think it is an exaggeration. To, it really is an existential battle. I mean, that doesn't seem like too much of an exaggeration. So, and uh, how you personally have dealt with it and the successes that you've had even in spite of it. So, Right. 
So I have been rather fortunate, and I mean also my generation, I suppose, uh, that all my professors, they had to learn alternative ideas on their own because mm, there were a few people, like if you went to Harvard, there would be uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, or if uh, you were in the uh, this part, uh, Kansas City uh, area, then uh, there were, were institutionalist, American institutionalist mm -hmm. uh, departments like Oklahoma for a while, uh, Texas. I mean, I imagine Fred, um, you know, goes over this, but it, even just in my time, I saw departments destroyed uh, either because uh, the mainstream part of the, they, there were these half and half departments. So you'd have these half orthodox, half heterodox departments. University of Tennessee was one. You had Anne Mayhew, Paul Davidson, they were a part of that department. And uh, they had Hans Jensen, and uh, they hired some younger people uh, who were familiar with heterodox ideas, but who were, you know, very competent economists. And a lot of my professors, they graduated from MIT or Harvard. So, I mean, yeah, they didn't have... Uh, you had an MIT... Lance Taylor, who later moved to the new school, you had. Uh, so things have gotten worse in the mainstream as far as exclusivity of mainstream economics. Uh, I, I would, of course, there's always counter tendencies, but certainly. Like, I went to a um, conference on economics and sociology that was held at Stanford, and I guess because it was at Stanford, close by, George Akerlof, uh came for some of the conference, and... Um, there was a fantastic presentation by this guy who had written his uh, dissertation on piracy in the Caribbean. And oh, actual Akerlof, piracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was actually from George Mason, Virgil Stores. A really interesting young guy, younger than me. So... He gives his presentation. It's rich and interdisciplinary, historical and sociological. And and the conference is an economics and sociology conference. And Akerlof says, so how would you model that? And it, 
you know, because unless it is modeled, it is not considered economics. Huh. It's considered something else. Like it's, you know what that reminds And you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of saying they're not a child unless they have a report. You know, it's like, it's like the report card is more important than the child themselves. Right. Well, you know, my, one of my teachers, Robert Heilbronner, who, you know, is one of the better known, uh, I'm not debating if he's heterodox or not. I mean, he, he was an important figure in heterodox, in the history of heterodox economics, regardless of, uh, you know, whether you use the supply and demand diagram once or something. But in any case, he used to, you know, there's different ways to be heterodox. For example, most of my professors, or all, the large majority, they were heterodox in terms of the content of the theory, but methodologically they were similar to the mainstream closer to the mainstream i didn't hear uh, the first word, part of that you said you said they they were heterodox in terms of content the content of theory so for example they they had either a labor theory of value or a Swafian theory of value, you know, okay. say, but methodologically, in terms of things like, especially, I, I'm harking back now to the, the um, sort of increasing formalization and mathematization uh, mm-hmm. of economics. Um, mm-hmm. And here I'm, I'm, I'm differentiating, you know, between empirical work, you can employ statistical methods, although you also have the, the mainstream there. So, you know, you have heterodox economists where their articles look like mainstream articles in terms of the methodology. Okay. Uh, so that's why I'm always emphasizing that at UMKC, we're not just heterodox, we are also interdisciplinary, you know, right up to the doctoral level, especially at the doctoral level. And the students' uh, dissertations must be interdisciplinary, and they have people from outside of economics on their committees, not just as external uh, advisors who make sure that everything is kosher, but to assist with, because all of our doctoral students have a core uh, coordinating discipline, economics, say, and a co-discipline. And they have to do all the core classes in, say, sociology or um, geosciences or 
Now, okay. they can do math, which sometimes you may have, but we have a real political economy tradition, and um, it's one of the great things about our program, and it's why certain types of students really thrive at UMKC who, you know, I had to sit in my economics classes, okay, because I told you uh, I, I, I was not prepared for graduate study in economics, either in terms of my uh, mathematics training or my economics background. What I uh, had discovered in my undergraduate years was uh, I was not prepared, but I will say that the new school accepted me into the program, you know, which is, you know, you have some even heterodox programs will not accept students into their doctoral program if they did not major in economics as an undergrad. They will accept them into the master's program. Uh, and, I mean, a lot of my colleagues at the new school, my co-students, uh, did not major in economics. In fact, Jay Mandel, who I mentioned, was at Temple, but he later moved to Colgate. Um, he, when I asked him about the economics major, he, as an undergrad, he said, why would you want to major in economics? I was shocked. I, I just assumed every professor wanted you to major in, you know, he said, um, economics is more appropriate for graduate study he was a history major as an undergrad. And, you know, it made a lot of sense to me at the time, although what I was going to say is that in my economics classes, and this is a completely heterodox program, but not methodologically heterodox, okay. the entire, uh, during class time, I just had to copy down all of the equations that the professor was putting up on the board as fast as I could and then later on figure it out. You know, I mean, only a couple of my teachers or in seminars where you had uh, stretches of political economy lectures, you know, I mean, that's when I got into the upper-level microeconomic, macroeconomics, and econometrics. I mean, and even even upper-level political economy was highly mathematical. And well, it's, it's just never been my thing. Let's put it that way. The model of um, the mathematics has never been your thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am not a a model guy, although I, I mean, I see where models are useful, um, but it can be useful. And by the way, George Akerlof, uh, you know, you mentioned Bill Cosby, I mean, maybe George Akerlof in economics would be a good example. Quite a personable, friendly 
person who did not have to ask, you know, verbal uh, stores or me about, you know, our work. And also from people I know who have gone to Berkeley, um, I've heard that he insists on teaching intermediate macroeconomics. And, like, if you're your stories, anecdotes about kids on campus on a weekend and had a question and saw his light was on and he just on uh, without an appointment giving them, uh, you know, his time. So very uh, generous, like you were talking about. I mean, but yet, you know, he was missing the whole point. It was like an insult to say to this kid, uh, he was a kid then, uh, verbal source, to say, so how would you model that? You know, like if you... How would you model that? If you that? do not model it, it's not economics. Or, right. It's like the report card thing. If you cannot reduce a child down to their report card, then they're not a child. Worth... worth Right. Worth knowing or worth, you know, looking at or what being with. Right. Right. And listen, MMT very much had to deal with this not because, and now it's completely not true that MMT doesn't have, you know, uh, models and and empirical work and so on. It's had it for years now, uh, but people still say because they read, you know, Randy Ray's uh, first book. Or um, now, Bill Mitchell, he really was an econometrician, so uh, a little bit different there, and his colleagues. A little bit different outside of the U.S. Uh, yeah, the European system, you know, is very, oof, very difficult. I mean, so like I say, you know, we've been very fortunate because my generation, because I got tenure and promoted uh, to associate and later full professor by publishing in all heterodox journals. I hmm. mean, wow. except for, you know, but I am not at the first institution that I had a job at, and I was on the tenure track um, at Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Hmm. That was my first job, and it originally was a one-year position which is a lot of heterodox people, a lot of UMKC people, they get one-year position if they don't, you know, track position, um, you know, a multi-year position or whatever. And then, you know, sometimes when they're there for that one year, that's kind of like a stepping stone to either a job at the same or another university. Right. Of course, they have to go on the whole national, international job market, which is, you know, very, very difficult uh, for heterodox people. I mean, now I, my 
I went on to the academic job market five times, which is uh, good for my students that I had a lot of experience, uh, but nobody, you don't wish that on anybody. Um, sure. But it, it, it was a grueling nine-month, ten-month-long, you know, process, and I would say like four out of five of those times, I had fewer than ten total interviews. These are pre-interviews, not campus interviews. You meet in the old days in a hotel room or you meet for uh, in a lobby or, or they have like a special room where you can meet and, and schools will advertise in September and October uh, for the following, you know, fall. And then uh, everybody sends in their applications and then they'll pick, you know, 25 to 35, say, um, uh, people to interview for half an hour or 45 minutes at the annual conference of the American Economic Association. And so I went to the American Economic Association meetings 15 years straight, you know, first because I was looking for a job and wanted to see what the whole thing was like, you know, uh, and later I was, uh, going to interview job candidates, right? I was on the other side. And so, you know, um, you know, you say, well, maybe I should say, in case any of your listeners aren't aware, every field has at least two alternative approaches. Like, I don't know what they call it in psychology, but like nature and nurture, right? You have your your behavioralists and you have your, you know, subjectivists or, or whatever, right? You, you have, in any introduction to sociology, you will have at least, they will have like maybe the theoretical and the empirical, or, you know, different approaches, right? And usually they have more than two. Economics is the only field where there is just one approach, and they call it economics. They don't even tell the students that there exists anything other than, right? So... Um, I, I I was in graduate school in 1990. I uh, got married, and my son was born in 1991. And I was working adjuncting all over in New Jersey and uh, in New York, like um, uh, Raritan Valley Community College. That was my first uh, adjunct teaching, you know, I taught in, in my own department as a teaching assistant, but then I, 
actually taught an intro course at Raritan Valley Community College, uh, Ramapo College of New Jersey, that's way up north in in uh, in New Jersey. But then also at Lang College, which is anyway, you're running all over and you're working more than full time, but you're getting paid much less than full time. Hmm. So I decided to send out some applications, even though my teachers said it was too early for me to be, you know, looking for a job or whatever. But um, I felt like uh, with a family and uh, so on and so forth. So I sent out some applications. I, I only got like a couple interviews, but it turns out that um, Gettysburg College, they had two advertisements. One was for uh, somebody to teach environmental economics, and the other was to teach history of economic thought. And, oh. I mean, there are very few people who have those two areas as fields. And in those days, it was even uh, more rare, especially because, I mean, the new school didn't even have a course yet in environmental economics. So um, in the early 90s, believe it or not, uh, I taught one as an undergraduate course, but the, I think Lance Taylor was the, or Heinz Kirch was the first to teach uh, environmental economics at the new school. Anyway, so they never thought that they would find one person you know, and also, I'm sure the recommendation from Heilbronner didn't uh, hurt because I I already knew from going to some conferences with Heilbronner that so many people. I'm probably the only person who ever went to the New School. I had never heard of Robert Heilbronner. Um, I mean, I'm not proud of it, but I was in Pan-African studies. You know, I didn't have time to study European anything. The new school was extremely... Uh, it took me a couple of years to figure out, like, how I could even... And we started a committee on race and gender and mm. really fought to see changes in the department because... Uh, you know, I've been kind of tongue-in-cheek using the terms mainstream heterodox and heterodox heterodox because we have, um, you know, whole courses on MMT, uh, post-Keynesian economics, uh, institutionalist economics, and Marxian economics, so I feel like I don't really have to do those again in my political economy doctoral course. So I get to do all kinds of less uh, commonly known alternative approaches like anarchist economics and peace economics and Buddhist economics and so on. And um, it, uh, a lot of that is really just such a, a joy for me. I mean, 
Gettysburg College, so there there was an uh, African fellow who now uh, is passed, uh, Derek K. Gondway, G-O-N-D-W-E. He wrote an excellent book called Political Economy, Ideology, and the Impact of Economics on the Third World. It, it's a pre-MMT uh, book, but um, there used to be some textbooks that would offer conservative, liberal, and radical perspectives in economics. And that was kind of how heterodox economics was slipped in. Usually it meant Marxian economics. I mean, it just wasn't, um, you know, a lot else. I mean, yes, you had post-Keynesian and Serafian, but even uh, Serafian, that's, that was a word that only started to be used toward the end of my uh, graduate school career uh, because uh, post-Keynesians made the mistake, in my view, of sort of disassociating themselves from there was always a debate. This is one of the reasons Fred Lee became a big tent guy, was he was a big generation. Disassociating from who? You, disassociating from who? You said that post Keynesians made a mistake from disassociating from who? Were you, were you about to say that? It's like... Sropians. Sropians. They disassociated from decided Sropians. to disassociate from the... Yeah. There were these inter... Uh, intra-heterodox Wars. I mean, oh, of course. It, uh, they were their own worst, you know, enemies, really. In a lot of cases, you had departments where, because Marxists and post Keynesians couldn't get along, right? I mean, a lot of this is personality stuff, as we learn, as we get older. But it's, it's also the it's also the the concept that you brought up before of like. You know, when when you have any support from on top, there's infighting because there's for, there's there's uh, artificial scarcity. True, true, absolutely. I mean, here's the thing. I became interested in economics and alternative economics, not just because. I suffered through a mainstream microeconomics course and was appalled, but because if this was maybe a field like, I don't know, 17th century French literature, I'm sure there are life and death issues. Yeah. But I mean, economists affect people's lives. Economic theories affect people's lives. Now, please, all of my wonderful, you know, friends in the Modern Money Network, um, and I am, I mean, I think the Modern Money Network is, is the 
greatest thing that ever happened to MMT, really, uh, because the interdisciplinarity. I was. I'm proud to have been a, a keynote speaker at the uh, first uh, conference of the humanities division. Hmm. So this is in no way, when I say 17th century French literature, I mean, this is not to say that that stuff also does affect people's lives. And I'm, uh, you know, but, and I, I mean in a more immediate sort of sense in that the country's leaders, they don't have a uh, advisor on 17th century French literature. And he's got economic advisors like crazy. So, uh, and I mean, so for better or for ill, without getting into any technicalities, I mean, not only is mainstream economics just one approach, which they call economics, which is, you know, the definition of ideology when something that is specific is put forward as something that is universal. So you're saying, when you were saying before that economics is the only discipline or something that only has one, I think, I don't remember, has like one, only one point of view, meaning heterodox doesn't even exist. That's what you're saying. That mainstream economics economics is economics. There is also another kind of economics. Uh, Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can't tell you that. In 99% of the departments and 99%, you know, uh, I mean, more than 99%, uh, you are never, they might say, I mean, the epitome of it is, after the sort of downfall of even Keynesianism, you know, of the mainstream variety, um, then even you had people like Mancu boasting they had never read John Maynard Keynes. And, I mean, listen, I, when I would go to all these conferences where I had to, uh, you know, do all these job interviews, I would always you know, get into conversations because like when you make your connection, then half the people on your flight are, you, you can pick out the economist right away. I, I, uh-huh. you know, the first time I was very alienated. I wanted to switch to anthropology, you know, but then, you know, I was so interested in what the mainstream doctoral students were reading, like their leisure reading, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, of course, a lot of it was like the business literature, what I would call it, you know, business literature. And that's not to put it down. I mean, in some ways, business schools at least know that mainstream economics is, you know, completely problematic. I mean, they know that you, if business schools we're teaching perfect competition. Mm. I mean, what? Competition, you know, perfect competition, if you're familiar with that. It's basically, neoclassical. It's, it's basically the, the, it's just an idealized, I don't, I don't understand it specifically, yeah. but I, I understand it enough to know that it's an idealized, unrealistic situation. Correct. And, 
so uh, even supply and demand prices, like Fred Lee so did a lot of very important work on markup pricing and that kind of pricing, which, you know, there's a debate about whether markup pricing or uh, cost plus pricing is a description of how businesses set prices or if it is actually also a theory of value, what we would call an economics of theory of value. I mean, I was trained that, you know, markup pricing can't be a theory of value because you're marking up a target rate of profit on costs, and costs are prices. So, you know, you have to keep going huh. behind until like, you that's finally... Like, that's like hooking a UBI to, to inflation. It's like... <laughs> yeah. I, so in that sense, yes, it's, it's circular. So you have to... A theory of value... And this, the mainstream does understand that ultimately to have a theory of value, something that underlies prices, you have to be able to refer to some forces that are not themselves prices. So, for example, an anchor in mainstream scarcity or utility, right? Uh, depending on how you want to look at it. But in any case, you know, uh, labor theory of value or Schroffer's value theory um, are, in my view, alternative, consistent, uh, on their own grounds, which mainstream neoclassical theory is not. This was the point I was trying to get at, which is that uh, mainstream economics not only only has one approach, that approach was demonstrated by the very best mainstream economists in the 1960s to have been shown to be internally, logically inconsistent on its own ground, the capital theory debates. What's we don't the, get into this uh, capital, the Cambridge, is that, I believe that's the Cambridge yes. debates. Who, so what economists Correct. are you referring to? Well, Paul Samuelson, Samuelson okay. um, wrote a one-page called A Summing Up of a 1966 um, quarterly journal of economics, I think it was. Um, uh, I'd have to look that up. Usually I know these things, but uh, um, in any case, there was a important symposium with uh, Luigi Passanetti and and some others, and uh, Garniani, you know, several of my professors, like John Eatwell, Pierre Garniani, and Edward Nell, uh, Anwar Sheikh, uh, with the humbug production function. Uh, you can look it up, like, in the New Palgrave Dictionary of Economics. They'll have a, an entry on the humbug production function where he shows that 
it's the laws of mathematics and not the laws of economics that get you the empirical fit. And so to do this, he spells out the word humbug and uses that the data point and feeds it into the neoclass production function and it yep. So in any case, these are people who so it only intervention got his first paper published uh, when he was uh, criticizing Robert Solo, you know, uh, Samuelson's colleague at MIT, and Joan Robinson had to intervene.